Um, can you just say a few words quickly, just so I can... Uh, Tottenham are the best team in the Premiership. <laughs> you are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more. Welcome to episode 12 of the Hoops Fix podcast with me, your host, Sam Nita, full-time British basketball advocate. And we're back. It's been a good summer. The winter is here. Time to get back on this. And it was a perfect time to do it because as you should know, or I hope you know, GB legend Pops Mensa Bonsu hung up his boots last week. He announced his retirement um, from playing the game to take a role with the NBPA, the NB, the NBA. National, sorry, I'm getting all tongue-tied, the National Basketball Players Association as a regional representative. So I thought it was a good time to reach out to him, see whether he'd be willing to have a little chat with us about his career um, so we can get some unique insight. Uh, as one of the few guys who's made it from these shores to the NBA, I think uh, Pops is someone that should be celebrated more. Um, and so I was very thankful to be able to get him on here um, and have this really interesting uh, conversation with him. As always, uh, I'm asking you if, if you've got a spare moment to get onto iTunes, give us a rating uh, and a review. It helps this podcast spread far and wide. We see exactly what, what we want to do. Um, and also, I would love to hear your feedback. Uh, reach out to me, drop me an email on sam at hoopsfix.com. Alternatively, I'm available on all the social networks at hoopsfix. Um, I reply to every single one. So let me know your thoughts. I'd love to hear from you. For now, I will leave you with me and Pops. Welcome back. We are here with the legend that is Pops Mensa Bonsu GB star. Obviously announced his retirement uh, last week, so I thought it was a perfect time to get him on the podcast and, and have a few words. Pops, thanks for joining us. Uh, anytime, Sam. You know, uh, I use that legend term loosely. You know, I'm, uh, <laughs> you know it's, um, appreciate it. It's humbling. And, you know, I'm just, you know, you've always been good to us British basketball players since you, you know, came on board a few years ago. And, you know, we always appreciate um, people in the media who, you know, give us the opportunity to to be ourselves and to to tell the truth and to, you know, just to do the right thing. And that's why, you know, I can speak for most of our, most of the players on the British basketball side that, you know, we, we definitely appreciate your efforts and what it is that you do. Thanks, man. I really appreciate that. Um, obviously, that is kind of what this is about. We've got, you know, hour, hour and a half uh, to go in depth, which is why I kind of started this podcast in the first place, because I love the the long format that allows us to to go places that actually, if we only normally had the sort of five to ten minutes that we have at media appearances and whatever else, uh, is quite limiting. Um, so I want to kind of cover everything. Uh, and I think the, the obvious place to start is obviously your retirement. Um, you know, how does it feel to be officially sort of hanging up the boots and knowing that you're not going to be back on a on a court playing professionally anytime soon? It's, it's, man, it's very difficult. It's uh. It's kind of one of those uh, situations where you, it's not it's surreal, you know. It hasn't really hit you until, uh, or it won't really hit me until you know. I'm not too sure when. Once I, you know, released a statement and you know I was starting to get messages and people were calling me asking me, you know, had I really retired? What's the you know what's going on? Like you could still play for a few years. It, that part was difficult, and I. You know, like I said, I, I probably won't be able to adjust to it for a while because I love the game so much. I love competing. I love the camaraderie of being, you know, on a team. 
So, you know, in, in that sense, you know, walking away from the game of basketball was, was really tough. But it's, uh, you know, a lot of people would think that, you know, if you just look at the media and everything that's happened to me in the last year or so, the masses would think, you know, the, the easiest reason for me to walk away from the game was because I was forced out, which is not really the case. I think, you know, the doping situation, as unfortunate as it was, and, you know, I'm sure we will go into that a little later, it made my decision easier. But even if I was, yeah, we have to understand, you know more than anybody else, I had my best statistical season last season in, um, in, in Athens, in Greece. And the way my body felt, the way my trainer had me feeling, you know, the way my knees felt more, or, or above all, had me feeling like I was 25, 26 again and that I could play at least four or five more solid years of high-level basketball. And it just, so I, I would have been forced with this decision regardless. The opportunity that arose for me as far as this job that I took at the NBA Players Association was something that uh, I probably would have had to take even if, like I said, this doping, decision, um, doping uh, situation wasn't up. Uh, it's a job that doesn't come up too often. I get the opportunity to work with NBA players. I get the opportunity to to help them learn from some of the experiences that I had as an NBA player. And some of the, and my job has the international piece to it, so I get to help the international players. Which is, you know, you never know what it is you're gonna your calling's gonna be. And I've never been a person that that is has 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 said that. This is my calling. You know, I had to do this because I had a higher purpose. But literally, this is exactly what it was. I, when the job was explained to me, and I would tell, I would ask other people, other people's, you know, thoughts on it. Literally, every single person who know, knew about the season that I had or did not, they was like, "You have to take the job." Obviously, Someone, the, the, the official but, the official title of the job is regional representative. Is it for the MBPA? And so, yeah. what, what exactly does it involve? So, the regional there's six or seven regional reps across the NBA, and you know we we basically provide our services to the players to help them with whatever needs they have on or maybe or off the court if they're having problems with transitioning to the NBA, if they're having problems with the NBA lifestyle, you know, drug, alcohol, family, on the, you know, basketball-wise, we have to let them know of their rights. We have to make them feel comfortable that they can trust us. Obviously, there's a confidentiality part of things, and they usually hire former players so that we can relate to the, the, um, the players that are currently playing. So that they understand where what position these players are in, I think the reason why I took the job, the fact that I'm so young in not maybe in basketball terms, but in in the fact that I've you know I still have a lot of my life left to live, it's easier for me to relate to a lot of the players in the NBA. A lot of them were peer, are peers, a lot of them I played with or against, and I still look like a player, and it helps get across to them that. They could trust me. Whatever they could tell me, I've either seen, I've either heard, or I've either done. So nothing that 
they could bring to the table, nothing that they could uh, could ask me about is going to surprise me, shock me, or you know, have me taken back. So they had that's that's one of the main reasons why I had to do it. And like I said, the international side of things was a big deal too, because I uh, I get to relate to some of these players who. You know, most of the, you know, it's 114 international players in the NBA and it's growing every single year. So the fact that I've played in seven different countries, born and raised in London, England, went to university in the States then played in the NBA. I have, I feel like I have a unique perspective on life and basketball. And a lot of the players are from some of those countries that I played in. I'm able to relate to their culture. I'm able to relate to their lifestyle. I've been able to adapt on and off the court to, to that culture and to that lifestyle. And that is something that not too many people possess. And that was, uh, that was another reason why I, f- I deemed it necessary for me to, to go, go ahead and take this job because I wanted to serve these players who some of the struggles that I may have had off the court in my time in the NBA, I wouldn't want some of these players to, um, to have to go through. And if I'm able to, through my experiences, prevent anything like that happening, then I feel like I would have done my job. I I don't want players who come into the NBA to to not make it, to the, for lack of a better word, or to not be successful because of situations off the court. If you don't make it in the league because you know things didn't you know go your way on the court or you know, barring injury or barring, you know, you just may not have be, been your cup of tea on the court, but let it be basketball. The reason why, you know, even make it, if I don't want any outside influences to be the reason why some of these players didn't get to where they deserve, didn't, didn't, you know, see out their, their true potential. And that's why I felt like with some of the knowledge and some of the experiences I had, I could be, this job would be perfect for me. So that's, that's in, in uh, in two essence, that's exactly why I took the job. When you when you look back on on your own career, do you feel like you reached your potential? Mm. Uh, so a lot of people would say, "No, I don't think so." Basketball is. Uh, Sport. The world of sports is tricky. Not too many people get to reach their true potential. If that was the case, you know, there would be a few different Michael Jordans. There'd be a bunch of uh, a bunch of Magic Johnsons, Larry Birds walking around there because everybody was able to reach their, their true potential. You know, I think even if you look at guys like LeBron James, has he reached his true potential? Did he reach his true potential? You know, he's been to six, seven NBA finals and, you know, only won a couple. Uh, you know, obviously he's grown as a player and a person. And, you know, I'm sure when his career is all said and done, he could probably look back on things and say, wow, I wish at the age of 25 when I made it here, I, I would have had this or this or something else. And I would I, I probably would, my career would have probably been different. Obviously he's, you know, an all-time great, but it is, it's tough to say. You know, if you reach your true potential, I think I got to, I got um, to a very high level. Obviously, making it from Tottenham all the way to the NBA, a lot of people would be like, 
you were successful in that right in itself. I'm not one. I've always set lofty goals for myself. I'm not one to to settle or be content. And that's the reason why I say I was. I don't think I reached my true potential. I think there's a period in my career where I reached a peak. You know, right around the time I, you know, I spent. I was with Toronto, then I went to Houston, and then after I went to Russia, and then had that season with um, with the GB team, where you know I was, you know, me and Lawal, Lawal myself were on a tear. I felt like that's that that was the peak of my career, uh, playing wise, you know, physically, you know, just I was in a great place mentally, and I was just so determined to be successful, so determined to, you know, carry the weight of everything, my family where I was from, country, uh, just, you know, my name to a level that not too many other people had reached. And uh, it, it was it's, it's difficult because I've never been one for excuses. Any situation I've ever been in, I'll probably look to the reasons why it didn't happen because of me. Where some people could say they've been circumstantial. Some people could say I fell victim to the business of basketball. You know, I always say, if you're good enough, things, you know, it will happen in your favor. Like Kenya Martin broke his leg in college, snapped it right in half. We all saw that. And he was still the number one pick. You know, the the, the NBA scouts didn't want to t- take a risk in saying, well, he broke his leg. Who knows what's going to happen? It was like, you know what, we're going to take him anyway. And that's one thing since when I saw that happen, I was like, if you're good enough, they'll take you. you know, I, I always felt like I was good enough my last couple years of university to be drafted. And I think my junior year, I, I had gotten some you know, conf- affirmations or confirmations that if I, was, if I had stayed in the draft, I would have been drafted my junior year. But back then, you never left school to become a second-round pick. And I remember I had a Luau came to D.C. to play the Wizards. I was still a junior in college, and I, I asked him, what did he think about me entering the draft? Um... He said, I'm going to tell you like this. When you make a decision, make sure you make it wholeheartedly. You make sure you jump into You make a decision, make sure you jump into it with both feet. Don't ever have your foot out, you know, one foot in, one foot out, because you're going to be second-guessing yourself regardless of what happens. So, you know, once I did it, I was like, if I'm going to go to the NBA, I'm going. If not, I'm coming back to school. Just, just make that decision. And, you know, that definitely helped me. So, I, it's, it's, it's difficult. It's, it's difficult, Sam, because there's times where if you look at how I played with GB at that time, and, you know, you know more than anybody else when you played that Bosnia game in Liverpool, was it? Was it Liverpool? Yeah, Liverpool, Birmingham. Might be Liverpool, I think. One of the two. And, you know, Luan and myself had that, you know, that crazy game. I'm playing on, you know, on the same level as, you know, an NBA All-Star. And sometimes I go back to my room like, wow. Like, Luau was one of the best players I've, I've felt in the NBA. Easily one of the most, the, arguably the most underrated player in the NBA. And I guarantee you a lot of players in the league would attest to that. But I, I could easily play on that level. Sometimes opportunity, you know, never... Um, 
never the opportunity never came up or whether I was ready when the opportunity came. It remains to be seen. But maybe perception was the reason why I never got to reach my full potential. But I know Coach K said something very profound not too long ago and it kind of put my whole career into perspective for me and made and helped me uh, come to terms with a lot of things. He said, perception is reality. But how often do we get the opportunity to go beyond perception? Once I heard that, I was able to sleep at night a little easier. It's the truth. You know, I can't really be concerned with what the masses think about me, the negative or positive. You know, I would love it to be all positive because those close to me and those who truly know me know who I am as a person on and off the court. But, you know, once I saw that, I was like, I can't really try to convince people of who I am, good or bad. Can't really try to convince people or explain to people why my career went this way, why I played for so many different teams, why I was injured so many times, why I never uh, played in the NBA as long as I had wanted to or people may have thought I would have. So I just, once I said that, then, you know, those who are close to me, those who I respect and those whose opinions I respect, and don't get me wrong, I respect everybody's opinion, but those who, who know me well enough to, to not judge me without knowing the truth, those are the people who really know, you know, how, how and why things went the way they did. You know, it's, sometimes it's unfortunate, but I had one of my friends here come up to me once I told him about my retirement. He was like, I was like, man, I never really made it. I never really got the opportunity to have an impact on the NBA like I wanted to or had a, I never got an opportunity to just to be myself in the NBA. I was always, I always had to perform. Once I stepped in that NBA court, I always had to perform. I never had the opportunity to be able to make mistakes. I was always on, um, it was always perform or don't play. And that was tough. But he told me, he was like, you have to understand, his career ended earlier in college or something. He said, you got the opportunity to do something that not too many people in this world get to do. You know what I would give to put on uh, an NBA warm-up just to run up and down the court and say I did it? Like, you made it. You got there. And like I said, I've never been one that's content or one that is... um, that settles. But sometimes you have to put things into perspective. When I was 12, 13, you know, I was on, you know, the under 14, 13, under 15 team with Joe White. You know, I probably wasn't even one of the top eight guys on the team. And my older brother was going to Washington State around that time. And luckily, my parents found the opportunity to, for me to go to high school. I remember telling the guys, on my team that I'm going to the U.S. And they looked at me like, yeah, why? And little things like that, which which make me feel like, help me put things in perspective, stuck with me. It was they, I don't think they meant any disrespect by it, but they was like, well, there's other guys who could probably, who probably deserve it. And I never went to, you know, to the U.S. initially to play basketball. My yeah. parents found a better opportunity for me to go to school. I was actually... I was actually maybe a couple months away from representing England in the high jump. Like I literally thought I was going to the Olympics to be a high jumper. 
that's that was my that was my dream. That was my goal. I wasn't that great at football, but athletics was what I did. And I literally thought I was going to be the next, you know, British high jumper. I remember you saying in 2012 when we when we sat down um, when you were in Sheffield, I think, playing games, and and you said that you originally didn't go out to the states to play basketball. I mean, so what? It was just an it was just an academics thing where your parents thought it was a, it would be a better opportunity for you education wise. Yes, not edu- education wise, just opportunity in general. Why? Uh, if you look at it in England, it's not as prevalent that we go to university. Not to you know, once you've graduated, once you've left your secondary school and may even go to, to college or sixth form, you kind of go into the real world. Uh, you go find a job, you know, you get your work experience and you go to sixth form and then you go from there. I don't think it's a bad thing, but I know a lot of people who have gone to university, but some of my friends who are, who have been successful, you know, never touched a, uh, a college, a university campus. And in the U S Going to college is something that's standard, and once you get it, once you get a degree, and once you know your field, and once you you know if you work hard, just like it's like that the outlier theory. You put ten thousand hours into something, uh, you know you're bound to be successful. Just like basketball, I, I put those hours in, and I was able to get to a certain a high level. So with that opportunity, as far as any craft, uh, business, law, um, medicine. You put that that uh, that time in, you know something's going to fall in your way, and that's what America is. It gives you that chance and that opportunity to thrive and to to be successful. And I think that's what my parents wanted for me. And so, after you went to the states, it was, it was a, you had a couple of years before it was like you went all in on basketball, and you were doing high jump and football at the same time, yeah. or yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, what, I was high jump football. I was playing uh, basketball too, and. I was still coming into my own, I think, as a person, physically, athletically. I think high jump came natural to me, so it wasn't something that I had to grow into. But basketball-wise, I was I was growing at a at a at a fast, you know, at a really fast, and you know, I was kind of awkward. I wasn't, you know, my, I was I wasn't I hadn't grown into my body athletically. And it, it resonated on the court. And people, a lot of my friends around that time was like, you know, I couldn't really, you know, walk and chew gum at the same time. <laughs> and it was it was something that, that's, that's when I, that's why I really thought basketball was just going to be secondary for me. Just something I could somewhat do. And I just kept growing and growing. And then I just remember one day it just changed. It clicked. I remember Olu Babalola, you know, one of my close friends, he was like, try and do this. And he was like, just try to do a windmill. I think we had just seen the Vince Carter, that dunk contest in Golden State, you know, which I think is the greatest dunk contest of all time. And he, and he said, try and do this. And literally after one attempt, I did it. And he was like, seriously? And I was like, well, I, I've never done that before. He said, well, try something else. And then I did this and I did that. And literally it was like, Overnight, things changed. I started, my footwork started to come together. I started to, athletically, I started to know how to jump off one foot, two feet. I knew how to, I could, I, when I, when somebody showed me something, I could pick it up fast. And that's when I, that's when I knew I, I had at least the opportunity to go to university. 
and then I'm sorry, go ahead. How how uh how often were you coming back to England at, at this point when you were in high school still? At least once a, once a year, I would come back in the summertime. And would pe- so would people get to see you play? Uh, there was a period where I didn't come back for a while. I'm sorry to uh, if I correct to correct myself. There's a period, so maybe the first two years. I think we're the last rough and ready. After the last rough and ready, after Joe died, I didn't come back until I was in the NBA because I was always doing summer school. I think I came back after my my freshman year, played in the last rough and ready in two thousand two or three. If I'm yeah. not correct, I'm still waiting for that footage too, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> you got to speak uh, to Matthew. Okay, <laughs> and. Um, I think from my junior, from my sophomore year, junior, senior year, I was just in school grinding, trying to graduate earlier, trying to to better myself as a player and educationally. And once once I realized I had an opportunity or had a chance to make it to the NBA, I just I just went 100 miles per hour, and I was just working every day. And I added the draft obviously early in my junior year, and then my senior year, you know, I was I went to the NBA, so. They nobody had ever seen me until I was. They saw that I was in the NBA. They don't really get too much college basketball in in England, so nobody really knew what was going on. And the first time they saw me was after I had signed my contract in the NBA, and everybody was like, "What the hell?" Because you you didn't play junior national team at all in England. No, I didn't get it. I didn't get a chance to. I, oh. I, I probably didn't think I was good enough at that moment in time, anyway. And then we didn't have. That was the first. That was one of the years. But a few years, they didn't have, we didn't have a World University Games team. So then, so when you first suited up for GB in 2008, was that the first time you'd ever represented internationally, like national yeah. team? Wow. I used to go to Lily, Lily Shaw and all that. Shaw, yeah. <laughs> I would never, you know, I never got, I never got a chance to make it further. And once after my rookie year, for some reason, I had to go to summer league because the Mavericks were, you know, I had the potential to make the team. So I, I, did, I missed that first, uh, the year in 07, yeah. 06, 07, 2006, 2006, I missed that year where it kind of first started. And I was like, well, I have to make it to them. But I really wanted to play for GB. And then I'm like, I'm an undrafted rookie. How do you go to Mark Cuban or somebody? And not to say that he said, he said no, but how do you go to Avery Johnson and Mark Cuban and say, hey, <laughs> I'm not going to make it to this, to this thing because I'm going to go play for my country. Yeah. Said, go ahead. You're not going to play for us, though. <laughs> so, you know, I, I just kind of was focused on this and making this. And once I got my foot in the door, I was going. I felt like everything else would come into place. And, you know, God willing, it did. And, you know, after that, I made it my goal to play for GB every single year. So, around, so if, if, if no one had really heard of you when you were sort of coming up and you first started sort of getting good, who were the guys or were you aware of the guys in England um, – that were of your generation or around that that were kind of like this, the this sort of the, the stars. Okay, obviously, yeah. I mean, everybody they knew of me. They just didn't know. They, they like then we had guys like Teddy, um, Teddy Danchi and G- Jeffrey Botang. Um, we had Trevor Houston. We had you know there was uh, Alou Babalola. There was Andrew Sullivan. I'm talking about people from from the Joe White camp and uh, you know guys like that who. Uh, who who would who looked at as the future? They were looked at as what we saw as the next guys to make it. 
And I fell, you know, somewhere, you know, after that. So people always knew them. Guys like Richard Mitchley, Nick George, all those guys are the, you know, the same, the same era as I was and the same, you know, age, age group kind of like. And I remember Joe White used to tell us Richard Midgley was the best 83 in the country. And that just used to light a fire in us. Because every time he played us, he would, Richard Midgley was one of the best players I've ever seen at that age, easily. At that age. And like, he just, I, I don't know what it was that he developed so fast and was that great as a player. I literally thought, this guy's going to be a lottery pick. This, this, it's crazy. And, uh, I always ask people what, who, uh, who they think the the best sort of uh, junior British player of all time was, and Richard Mitchell comes up consistently as as like yeah. that age group was just it's, insane. So I'm gonna tell you like this: Richard Mitchell, obviously Luau. You have this guy named by Darren Morgan. Not too many people know of him. He's one of the best players I've ever seen, <laughs> NBA or not. Uh, Darren Morgan, Richard Mitchell. You have. Um, Patrick Mackey was great. You have Olu and Andrew Sullivan. Not too many people know Andrew Sullivan. I thought Andrew Sullivan was going to be the next Michael Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> like, at that age, you know, representing London Towers, you know, as a, teen, as a teenager, then just his, his, you know, the stuff he did at, at Rough and Ready, then he went over to the U.S. and killed it too, and like living when I when I first played at GB, and he was the captain, I was like, it was it was like a, I was like a shock, not shock, but I was. Andrew Sullivan was all everything, and now we're on the same team, and we're teammates. And I was looked at as a leader on that team. I'm like, no, that's you've got that's all Andrew, and just because of my personality. But you know, Andrew was obviously the captain. He led us, and but just Sully was everything, man. Sully, he. I wanted to be like Andrew growing up. There was my brother and there was Andrew Sullivan. I would, those are the guys who I was like, if I get the opportunity to be anything like either one of them, I'm good. <laughs> so, um, yeah, junior-wise, some of those, you have those names have to come up. Richard Mitchell definitely came up in the conversation. He was easily one of the best players in, um, in, in that era, definitely. So, obviously, in the, in the, in the States... Um... I'm assuming that, I mean, did you notice a big difference between playing, when I'm talking about initially at high school, did you notice a big difference between playing in England and America, or was it more that you actually, you started developing and coming through in America, so that was all you ever knew type thing, if that makes sense? No, I did. There were times where I'd be in practice and guys couldn't do a three-man weave. And I was, and one thing that, that why I think Joe was the greatest coach I've ever had, NBA or not, he told us, he broke us down. He told us the basics. Everybody, whether you was a point guard or a center, he told us everybody had to be able to handle the ball. Everybody had to have shooting form. Everybody had to have the skills and fundamentals down before we even did anything. I remember when I first walked into the gym, I just had some, like, Reebok Classics on. He was like, go ahead and, and, run, and, and run. And they were doing this weird drill where they were passing the ball running around each other and it was like 10 of them. He was doing a 10-man weave, uh, Sam. I've never seen it. And to this day, I've never seen anybody, any, any other coach or any other team be able to get it on point. If we messed up, everybody had to get a layup. If we messed up, we would start again. 
that's how we used to finish training sessions. Do a 10-man weave so everybody gets a lap. So we had to go up and down the court 10 times and no mistakes. He would explain it to us one time and we had to have gotten it. And uh, after us, let's go ahead. How many years did you have playing with him before you went to the States? It was like... So it's strange. It was funny. Maybe I was 11 when I initially got introduced to basketball and then went to practice. I remember Joe was, he was like, if you're serious about this game, you know, look, you should probably, you know, come to Homerton um, House. And as an all-boys school, I was like, I don't want to go to an all-boys school. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm 11, 12, 12 years old, getting ready to uh, come into my own as a, as a, you know, a preteen and, he wants me to go to a boys' school. So, obviously, at that time, basketball wasn't high on my agenda. And I was like, nah, I'm just going to go to St. Thomas More and Wood Green, where all my, my my primary school friends were. And, you know, that's where I wanted to go. All the girls were going there, too. So, that's where I wanted to go, and that's where I was going. And I remember I went for my year, one year, and then when I was... I can't remember the exact age, but I think I was the first or second year. I didn't go. I didn't go to practice for a whole year. I would just hang it out with my friends, and then, you know, I would go through Wood Green. And once you get to that Tottenham part where my stop is, you have to take another twenty minute drive to get to to Hackney. So I would just to get to Stamford Hill to get to Hackney. So it'd be another. I'd be another forty minutes away. And if I was a li- if I looked like I was going to be late, I didn't want to risk the fact the um take the risk of getting in trouble. <laughs> So I just wouldn't go that day. And one day would turn into two, and then two would turn into a week. And then after not coming for a week, I'm like, I have to, find, then I'm going to have to explain myself. So I just, I, I literally, a week turned into a couple of weeks, and then it turned to a month. And literally, I missed the whole year. And then Joe called my dad, like, where is he? And Joe, and my dad was like, well, you know, he has to, his schoolwork is suffering sometimes. So he has to do this, then the third. And I remember the first time Joe saw me, I was, saw me again after I took that almost year sabbatical from the game. I thought he was going to punch a hole in my chest. <laughs> and I was just so scared. And I was, and he just looked at me. He was like, Man, if this is what you want to do, you have to be serious about it. And that's all he said. And I felt like I had disappointed him. And after that, I never wanted to disappoint him again. I used to come to practice straight from school and I would do two practices. I would practice with the under um, 15s, and then I would practice with the under 18s or the the the, the men. If if I was allowed, that was like um, a sign of respect from Joe. If he allowed you to stay behind and practice with the older guys, that means he knew that you was you had something. Sometimes he would ask me. Sometimes he wouldn't. So I always felt like my best, one of my close friends, Trevor Huston, he always had the opportunity to practice with him so time so we used to ride home together because we lived close so i would stay behind and just watch and joe would be like well, what you doing put your shoes on let's go and so that's you know i probably played not to, to not get on a tangent on your initial question i probably played four years four or five years under joe taking if you count that year i didn't go from the age of 11 to one right when I turned was 15 going on 16 and then when you were in the states did you stay in touch with him of course once the once once I had came back all I ever wanted to do was show Joe more so than anybody else that I was good 
and I just wanted to get better. I remember I was in secondary school and we didn't have a football and I brought my, I had a basketball I'd found somewhere, I don't know where I got it from, uh, one of the rubber ones. And I had, the, I had, you know, some of my friends doing this drill that we used to do in training where we would, you know, do like a figure eight, we put the ball through our legs and run with it. And you, and you have to do it without making a mistake, like a race. It was like a little relay race. And I had them doing it. When I saw that, I was like, I think I really love the game of basketball. And I just really wanted to get better. And I just, you know, that, that, that's what it was. I just, I never wanted to disappoint him. And that's, that, that's basketball was what I wanted to do. But I, I don't think uh, it hit me that I could do it because my confidence wasn't what it should have been. I wasn't one of the better players in the, we used to call it, we used to determine our age groups by the year we were born. I wasn't one of the best 83s. I was born in 1983, so I wasn't one of the best 83s on my team, let alone the country. And for me to even have a, a chance or opportunity, I would have needed to have been one of those be- better players. So that's what it was. At, at what point while you were in uh, high school did the colleges start coming and start recruiting you? You know what's funny? I was the state champion my sophomore and junior year in high school at high jump. And I was, the first letter I'd ever gotten was for track and field. And I was like, I'm going, I'm going to university to run track. Like I was, there were some big schools who were trying to, um, trying to recruit me to, to run track. And it's funny, if you ever get a chance to speak to Lou again, ask him about it. He always tells the story. It's weird that his, his initial story about, us competing against each other is is a track story. In 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 the prior, in the schools we went to, you had to. He went to Blair and I went to Hunt. You had to you had to play in two sports, regardless whether or to partake. You can do intramurals or you can do an actual competitive sport. Where if it's football, basketball, American football, um, you know, track, cross country, whatever. And obviously, we did. We both played basketball. I actually did cross country too. And um, that was the biggest mistake of my life. <laughs> uh, and then we did track. And we would see each other every other weekend in these track meets. And no, literally, I had been doing high jump for years at that time. And it was probably Luau's first time. So he's doing it in, in basketball sneakers and basketball shorts. And I have the full kit. I have the little shorts with the flat that open up. And I have the... the um, the, the, the track cleats, the track cleats, the studs, and you know, Luau is—they do it by you know feet and inches here. So, what was the equivalent to to five eleven, five six feet? You know, Luau's clearing that, which is pretty good for somebody who who's never really done it before. But obviously, he's he was athletic, or he's athletic and could do it. And they would ask me, "Why haven't you jumped yet?" And I was like, "Because I'm not ready to yet." So a lot of the time. I would have um, the, t- the competition would be over, and I I would have yet to jump because <laughs> it wasn't high enough yet. It wasn't high. It wasn't for me. It wasn't that high. Then I would you know do some flip or something and land on my feet. And Luau was like, "Are you serious?" <laughs> <laughs> because that's how I looked at Luau as a basketball player. I was like, "Man, he's he developed so fast, and he was so good." I was because I played JV my sophomore year. Okay. And he, all everything on his high school team. So it was kind of embarrassing for me. Somebody who was, you know, I, I, we, I, we knew each other from afar and I come over to the U.S. and they put me on the JV team and he's about to be All-American. Wow. It's tough. 
And that's all, you know, high jump was kind of all I, I was really had. I could excel at, at that moment in time. And, like, he still tells the story to this day about when he saw me clear seven feet. And, um, you know, he just was in shock. And, you know, that's that's why I really thought track was going to be my sport. So maybe my junior year when I played on the AAU circuit was when I started realizing I could at least go to a small Division One college to, to play basketball. Yeah, I found an old I found an old article when I was googling some stuff um, that was written in I think it was a local paper that was said that uh, it was only after you'd had like strong sort of a strong showing on the summer circuit that it's like you kind of started turning a few heads and um, yeah, it was strange that's that's why I got recruited the most in the AAU circuit. I remember I think I played on, on one in the All Star game that I probably wasn't even supposed to be in, and it was, it was outside. It used to be really big before they just did solely Nike and Adidas or Reebok and Under Armour or the other stuff. There was an all-star game that guys used to come to outside, which is strange because they would never have anything like that now. Yeah. And all these players, Division One players, all these Division One coaches were there. And I got the MVP of the game. Probably had like 10 dunks. And we just, I was just running up and down the floor, blocking shots, dunking. And after that, I had... All the big schools or the bigger schools on me, like UConn, I had Boston College, uh, George Washington, um, St. Joe's, LaSalle. All those schools were, were kind of on my heels then at that point. And that's when I was like, oh, wow, I have a real opportunity. But I felt like I needed to develop. I, I was still c- coming into my own athletically. So I needed to develop as a player. And I didn't know if going to a school like Boston College or, or UConn would be good for me. So why did you ultimately choose George Washington? I knew I was going to have the opportunity to play or even start as a freshman. And I, I, want, I needed the opportunity to develop as a player. If I went to UConn, I would have obviously competed, but you know, I don't know if I would have had the opportunity to develop. They, they, they recruit All-Americans. I think athletically I could, I could compete with anybody. But you know, I needed to hone on my skills. So when I got to George Washington, being able to play that that early was going to help me do so. And in your your four years at George Washington, it was kind of you you obviously took the program to a little bit of prominence in, in that time, and you had two two NCAA tournament runs. Um, you know, how do you look back on on that period? This defining moment, moments defining moments. I came in, uh, I came into GW with goals. I told myself, I set one goal, coming to GW, I want to start when I get there. I got to GW probably by the second game of the season, I was starting. Okay, you're starting. You want to be, I, I wouldn't, starting and being recognized as one of the best players in the team kind of go hand in hand because you're, you know, you're in the starting five. Then I was like, okay, I want to be one of the better players in this conference, my sophomore year, I get most improved players in, in their rank 10. Okay, still doesn't make you one of the best players in the conference. So I was like, okay, my junior year, kind of going in, I think I'm, they dubbed me to be third team all conference or something. But by the end of my, I told myself, if you're able to, by the end of your junior year, be, be, be good enough to go to the NBA draft, you'll be okay. And 
we played against Michigan State, and I literally had the best game of my college career. And they went to the Final Four that year. And after that, I was heading back to campus, and one of my friends came up to me excited, screaming, saying, man, somebody just came up to me and asked me, is he going to go back to school? I was like, I already just got back on campus. What are you talking about? He was like, no, idiot. Are you going to go back to school? Are you going to, you know, are you going to go to the NBA? I was like, seriously? And he was like, what you just did to a Final Four team was, you know, it proved that you're one of the elite. After that, my mindset changed. I was like, I have to start dominating. I have to start showing that I'm an NBA player. And I didn't, I didn't think highly of myself to be able to enter the draft. And once I did and I got invited to pre-draft camp, I was like, wow, you know, these, these, the powers that be or, yeah, the powers that be recognized me as one of those better players to be able to do so. Didn't go to, decided to come back to school. And once we, once I came back to school, I was like, look, now you have to be one of the best players in the country. You have to be one of the best players in the country. And if you come back and that's the case, then GW, if GW stays at a high level, then whatever happens to, to you will be a positive. Everything else will fall by the way. So I've always been a we before me type guy. And uh, if we if, if the team was successful, if the team uh, was able to get to, you know, win games and, you know, just be have some prominence, like you said, all the individual accolades would come. And that was the case. And that's how I looked at my college career. You were ranked as top five in the country at one point, right? Yeah, we was number five. And then, and then you got injured just before the tournament run? Yeah. For, um, I had a knee injury, tore my meniscus right before, two, three games before the NCAA tournament. Freak accident. What was it that, what, what is it that happened? So, uh, there were times, we went into that, that year we had only lost one game. It, we was like 25 and one at that point. And literally we knew we would be everybody we played. At some point in time, you would have stuck with us for the first 20, 30 minutes. But at some point in time, we was going to get a double-digit lead. And I was obviously one of the leaders and one of the, the main players on that team. And I was probably like 245 pounds around that time. And guys always tried to play physical with me. And, you know, it didn't really affect me. But guys always tried to play up to my physicality. And I remember the guy was trying to push me around the paint or something. And he slips. Another big fight, six eight, two hundred and forty five pounds himself, sips and falls and falls on my knee and my knee gets caught underneath him. And immediately when it happened, you know, I could tell something was wrong. I tried to walk and my knee was buckling. Walk again, knee buckled again. Then I just, you know, signaled to be substituted and that's when I kind of knew something was wrong. And you did come back and play in the tournament in the end. Yeah, I, you know, the, the meniscal meniscal tear is nothing major. You can have it shaved down and be um, and be able to come back within a matter of weeks, just as long as the swelling and the muscles regain their strength. You're okay. You're good to go. I know guys who come back from it in a week. American football players, obviously, they're built differently. So, yeah, I uh, rehabbed and got back and came back for the first game of the NCAA tournament. I obviously wasn't 100 percent yet, you know, because I I felt like with us being the number five team in the country, we probably deserved two, three seed at, at, at worst. They gave us an eight seed. <laughs> we was a number five team in the country, but we got an eight seed. I don't talk about this too much because, like I said, I'm not a guy for excuses because if I was 100% and we did, regardless of who we played, I felt my coach told, told me the other day that 
he felt like we were going to go to the Final Four. And, you know, I don't think it's far-fetched with us being the number five team in the country. We literally felt like we could beat anybody. And um, getting the eight seed and me not being 100%, we, we ran into the overall number one seed in Duke University. And they had the, probably the best big man in the country, Sheldon Williams, and I wasn't in shape to be able to compete with him like I would have wanted to. And, you know, they got the better of us, and you know, that was the end of my college career. Then obviously the NBA draft happened. Um, I've seen in, in in so many interviews you talk about that as kind of uh, obviously one of the hardest moments of your career, but also what ended up being a, a massive motivator. Um, what what was the kind of expectation going into the draft? Did, did you have any sort of guarantees, or I mean, we, I assume that you were you're obviously expecting to get picked. I was, yeah. I mean, the year before, I was. I felt like I had gotten some calls saying, "If you're still available at this point." you'll be drafted. Knowing this, this is what I knew. But like I said, it was, it was in the second round. You don't you didn't leave school early to become a second round pick. So I went back to school knowing that if we would had the year that we had being ranked in, a, in the top 25 in the country all year and then making it to the top five, it was a given. It was just where was I going to be picked? I thought I was a, you know had first round talent and ability, but... If I went in the second round, oh, well, it's no, no big deal. I still got drafted. That was one of my biggest goals coming from London is what, get drafted. You, that's just huge. Just get drafted. And um, that day, I was just so excited. I was like, you know, I had some great workouts with the teams. And uh, leading up to it, I really felt like I had done, my, done the job. That um, It's funny. I work with Keon Dooling now. I know I'm sure yeah. you're familiar with him. Yeah. My last game, I, I played so-so at the pre-draft camp. In my last game, I got in a fast break. And I was like, you know what? You got to wild these scouts. You got to wild these coaches and everybody else and these players. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to windmill it. And, you know, I take off and I start to do the windmill. And this is why I wish. That's why sometimes it hurts that YouTube and Instagram and stuff like that wasn't really around back in that day. Yeah, because I guarantee you would have been, you know, somewhere floating around right now, and I just go to windmill it, and a guy comes behind me trying to foul me, in the process, and I and I dunk it and one windmill. Guys are running on the court, going crazy and everything. And I remember, a coach came up to me and told me, no, a player, a player came up to me and told me, you just got yourself drafted. Okay. And I was like, yeah. He was like, because that that type, that kind of stuff doesn't even happen. And it's a, people think it's a myth, but you know I know people who were there, and they come up to me and it's like, man, what gives you the what gives you the audacity almost <laughs> to have to to to, to windmill or something? I, like, I didn't even know he was going to try and jump. I was like, I'm doing this regardless. Yeah. He tried to foul me, and I just did it, and the, everybody just went ballistic. So, Keon doing to this day comes up to me and still asks me, you know, can I still do that? I was like, yeah, you know, on occasion, <laughs> but um. Yeah, at that point, I was like, okay, I've shown them that I'm a, you know, elite athlete. And then the draft comes, and I go undrafted. I go undrafted, and I was hurt because I felt like I let everybody down. I let Joe down. I let my parents down. I let my brother down. I let my, my family down. I let the the White Heat family down. Um, I let Great Britain down, North London, everybody I, I, I let everybody down. 
And for like two days, I didn't leave my hotel room. Didn't answer any phone calls, nothing. I just sat there. I was, I cried. You know, my mother called me. She left a message. I didn't answer the phone. She left a message saying she wept. And that's when I was really hurt. When I saw that, I was like, if I have another opportunity to make it into the NBA, there's nothing going to stop me. And literally right after I said that, I got a phone call from my agent saying, Dallas wants you to come to Summer League. I was like, cool. I went in there focused. I went in there, and I'm and that hurts me because I was like, if I had this mindset in college, I probably would have been a high first rounder. I was like, I'm going to get every single rebound. I rebounded well in college, but not to the to the level that I did as a pro. It probably would have been easier for me to do it and in, in on the college level, but as a pro, I just told myself, there's nobody that can keep me off the glass. That's the way I'm going to get in the NBA, and that's what's going to happen. And literally, halfway through summer league, or summer league's over, I go back to work out with my agent, and he comes up to me and shakes my hand and gives me a hug. I'm like, what's wrong? He's like, you know. And he knew this. He knew this during summer league, but didn't tell me. But I'm stressing. I'm working hard. I'm, you know, we're in Vegas, and guys are always going out doing this, down the third in Vegas. I didn't leave my hotel room. I was like, I have to make it back to the NBA. He comes up to me and says, Dallas just sent over a two-year contract. I almost collapsed. You know, I was like, I did it. And he was like, you know, it's, you're there. You made it. And, you know, that kind of goes, that doesn't really happen. Come from summer league, you usually have to go to camp first to make the team. But they had already guaranteed me going into camp. And, you know, which was, and I feel like I, I had done it. And now it was just time to stick. That moment that you signed the contract, do you remember that? Where was it and what did it feel like? It was a relief. It was a more. I think I was in. I was in Seattle. Uh, signed with, with my agent, and uh, it's tough. You know, it's tough because you know I, I. I felt like I had accomplished what few had done, and it was. It was. It was a. It was a culmination of a lot of things coming together, and. Uh, I, yeah, I think I signed it quickly and just went back to my room and just, you know, just shed a tear for a second because I thought about everything. I thought about everybody that thought out I wasn't good enough to come over here, everybody that relied on me, everybody that, that didn't think I, I should have even been here, everybody that doubted me. I was like, I literally had done it. I had done it. Like, I... The odds were against me, and I defeated those odds. And at that point, I told myself, you can literally do whatever you want. You can do whatever. People always say, do whatever you put your mind to, this, then, the third. It is true. Like, if anybody knew me at the age of 13 and I told them I was going to be in the NBA, they laughed. To this day, they still laugh. You can ask anybody from the Joe White camp that if they knew me at that age and they would have told me... Um, I could make. I was going to make the NBA. It was like, there's no way in hell. There's no way in hell. What What was that initial um, NBA experience like? You know, going to going to the arena and the locker room and the practices and stuff. I mean, how, what was it like compared to your expectations of it? 
Well, I was in Dallas, so I was kind of spoiled. Mark <laughs> knows how to take care of his players. You know, we had PlayStation, Xboxes in each locker. You know, we had a flat screen in my locker. I had, like, this huge chair. You know, we had the best of everything. We had a weight room, sauna, jacuzzi, ice bath, all the best facilities all in one place. And that was my rookie. That was my first experience in the NBA. I'm thinking this is how it is. <laughs> and, I'm, you know, I'm getting to play against Dirk. That was the year he was MVP. I had to guard him every day in practice. He, you know, that didn't go too well, especially me considering myself a defender. But <laughs> it, was, it was great, man. I loved every second of it, every single second, you know, barring uh, as a period where, you know, I had a, a, a tough period during that year. But other than that, I loved every second of it, every single second of it. It was like I was I just enjoyed it. I started to enjoy it to the point where I didn't know. I, I, I couldn't. It was surreal. It was like I was in a dream the whole time. And I was like, when am I going to wake up? And that's what it felt like. We, got, we, was, we were dubbed to go to the NBA Finals. And obviously losing to Golden State, it didn't happen. But uh, we were the best team in the NBA, and I was on it. And I loved it. Did any of your experiences in Europe compare to the NBA? In what way? In any way. When I played in, in Russia in Francesco, we went to the, you know, they we had a private jet, all the <laughs> facilities, and it was in Moscow. It's a difficult place to live, but um, difficult time for me. I remember we spoke in the in the Final Four. It was difficult because I saw myself as one of the best players in Europe whenever I played over there. And I'm on the team that was probably going to go to the Final Four with or without me. And I wasn't really playing. But we got to the Final Four and I told myself, if I don't don't get back to the NBA, Euroleague Final Four is where I have to be. That's where I got to get back to. That experience for me was as good as being in the NBA. And it was, it was it was great. I loved it, and the, uh, that was probably my closest experience to being back in the NBA. Do you have any um, regrets about potentially giving up on the NBA dream and instead trying to get a longer term deal, sort of a more of that security in Europe, where obviously you know you could have been a star and well you were a star, um, but longer term rather than kind of the the multiple shorter term contracts. I wouldn't say regrets, but if I would give somebody any advice, I would tell them, chase that dream initially, but after that, you know, financial, financially, you know, be the best player you can be regardless. Don't, I chased the NBA because every time I played with GB, I would play at a level that was on an NBA level and then I'm like, I, should, I, I shouldn't be here. I got I to gotta be back in the NBA. And that's, it was just me setting my, my goals so high and being so competitive and driven that I felt like I wanted more for myself. And I really felt like being an NBA player would solidify me. It just, like I said, opportunities didn't really come up and certain, certain things happened. And you know, I, that's one thing I may do differently is just focusing and just be the best player I could be in Europe and other than that, I'm okay. I'm okay with it. You know, people say, "Well, you play for this many teams, this down the third. And like I said, perception is reality. People perceive things to be one way, and you know, usually they're another. And 
I just decided to, that's how my career went. I can, um, I can, I know that everywhere I've been, it's not like my production on the court was lacked or was questioned because every half of those teams I played with or against wanted to resign me. I just always wanted more. So I, it just, I didn't really look at it. If I, if I saw what was going on at that period of time, moment in time, I would have just, you know, maybe settled down and, you know, try to play with one, one team. But it, it was it's just how it goes. And, you know, I had this neat situation where teams are always skeptical, but they would see me play. And then they was like, well, we have to bring them on. And, you know, I, people, I bounced around and it's, uh, it doesn't look good from the outside, but, you know, like I said, everywhere I went, I produced regardless. And, you know, I still consider myself one of the better players in Europe every time I, every, any time and every time I played. You mentioned GB there. Um, you know, when you think back to your experience with GB and kind of, you know, the Eurobaskets and, and the Olympics and you look at the program now, um, how does it make you feel? Hurts. It hurts because guys like Luau, Joe Freeland, myself, Andrew Sullivan, first and foremost, he's committed and he's, you know, been there from the beginning. It's great to see him get his 100th cap with the team this summer. We've been committed and we felt like we had a social responsibility to, to make GB basketball what it was to get GB basketball to the level that we could inspire a generation to want to pick up a basketball and bring GB basketball to prominence. And I personally felt like we had failed, but I don't, you know, if you look at what we did leading up to the Olympics and nobody would have ever expected that if we had the team that we was, we were supposed to should have, could have had, we make it to, we might, we might, we may have even made it to the middle rounds. I'm confident in that. If I don't get hurt in the Olympics, I'm confident that we make it to the medal rounds too. Some people be like it was far-fetched, but how many teams can say they, they have four or five NBA players on there? You know, if Ben Gordon shows up, Joe Freeland, Luau Deng, myself, Robert Archibald, like <laughs> Dan Clark was a potential NBA player. Like, uh, it's, there's not too many teams can, dub that, can say that. And we... You know, we we just fell short. We fell short. And it's hard to say you fell short when you owe that to a generation. When you owe that, now it's something that's just going to be there. Like, yeah, they played well, but they fell short. And I never, I can never really live with falling short in any way, shape, or form. It was, that's, that's it, just disappoints me. It's, it's tough not to get emotional as far as that's concerned because... The way things ended for me with GB is tough, and the way things and you know in the Olympics and just how things have gone, it's, it's it's difficult to talk about. But I just I don't like it. I'm sorry. I don't like. It. That's okay. Um, I'm aware of time. We've got about ten ten minutes left. A, a little bit, a little bit less. Um, 
I know you say you want to get to the doping. Let's go. Let's yeah, do it. Let's, right, <laughs> let's right, do it. Right. Um, okay. You know, how did that whole situation unravel? What are your memories of it? Getting tested and then, and then obviously when you got the results or when you first got notified about it? Do you want me to go from the beginning of how, why yeah. I was taking the medication? Yeah, yeah. No problem. So, uh, Denver Nuggets camp a couple years ago, I go in there and my agent a few years ago told me, you know, a, a knock on me was, he's an NBA athlete, NBA player. His focus and concentration is not where it should be. That's a lot of, that's a tag that preceded me everywhere, anywhere I went. A lot of teams were, if, you know, he, they knew I could do this, but they knew I would lose focus sometimes. So, I go to, my agent said, you got to get that checked. And I'm like, whatever, I've gotten to the NBA, I'm okay. It's not that serious. Finally, fast forward to 2013, I think. I speak to, I go to the, uh, 14, actually, it was last year, I'm tripping. I go to the team doctor and Nuggets, tell him about what my agent said about the focus and concentration. He was like, you might have ADD or ADHD. He, he um, test dude that runs me through some tests and he was like, it's clear that you have it. And the fact that you've gotten this far is pretty amazing. And he prescribes me this medication, this Adderall, which is, you know, uh, approved and accepted in the NBA because uh, some people's players suffer from it, but not in many leagues in Europe. I'm at that time. I'm trying to make the M make it back to the NBA. I get cut. Uh, I go to I go to Greece. Then I, I tell the doc. First thing I do is tell the doctor, "Hey, I'm taking this man." First thing we've told her as athletes: if you're on any type of prescription medication, notify and disclose it to the team before they even had a chance to talk about my knees. The first thing I did was give him the pills that I was taking. He was like, "Okay, we'll look into it." Okay, so they come back and say you shouldn't. Uh, it's going to be difficult for us to get it approved, but don't take it on game day. We'll we'll look into it for you. I was like, "Well, let's just let's just disclose it to the doping agency, so that we can um, so that we can get a clarification of whether I should or should not take it." And they're like, "No, just don't take it on game day. Fine. Fast. Go through the whole season, having the season that I'm having. You know, running through the season. You know." Then some strange happens where I'm requested to take a drug test. That type of thing doesn't happen in Europe. Maybe in the NBA, but not in Europe. Like they have a special request for me to take it. So I knew something was wrong. So I take it, go to the season, I get sick. We get eliminated from the playoffs. And then the day after the game, I get a call saying, uh, this is the doping agency from Greece, blah, blah, blah. Are you Pops Metabonso? I'm like, yes. She was like, we found amphetamines in the system at that moment i'm like okay strange but easily explainable before the phone i hung up on the phone i like i get a thousand text messages tweets everything saying what happened they say you had drugs in your system you're taking steroids I'm like wow steroids so immediately i'm just it's almost a point of depression it was it was difficult because uh, I was in a situation where I was like, "This doesn't look good at all," but I have to explain myself. I have they have to, everybody has to know the truth. It's not steroids, and they just told they just said amphetamines. They don't say that. Yeah, my medication has amphetamines in it, but 
it, it's not a performance enhancing drug. It doesn't make me stronger, doesn't make me faster, and it doesn't make me jump higher. That's what I had. That's what people. That's what I wanted to get to know. Let people know. But um, you know, it's a bad situation regardless. Through the press conference, and I didn't want to get anybody in trouble because the first question I was going to get asked was, "Why didn't you disclose it?" And as I just told you, I did. But you know, I didn't want to get anybody in trouble, so you know, we were luckily able to avoid that question. Fast forward to the hearing, we go to the hearing, and I'm thinking it's easily explained. I have a doctor's note. I have the the prescription reasons why I'm taking it. Explain the medication and why I have to take it, and I think it's just I'm thinking it's straightforward. I'm thinking it's easy for them to see. Hey, this guy wasn't in any violation, even though he took something. He was. It was a reason why he was taking it. Even though I left the meeting in doubt a little bit, I still think if they do their due diligence and their um, and I still think to this day, even now that I filed the appeal and I'm retired, that if they do the right thing and investigate it the right way, they will know. I wasn't in any type of violation of what happened. So, so have you appealed it now? Yeah, I should be getting hearing back from them soon. But I only appealed it because I felt up my reputation. Yeah. I wouldn't go this far if I felt like I was guilty of anything. Yeah, yeah, of course. And when, and when me, you heard it was two years, I mean, what was your reaction to that? I was, I was hurt. I was hurt. I was... Because, like I said, after having my best individual season, you know, I really thought, um, I really didn't see it happening. I really thought they would be like, okay, first is a first offense. There's a reason why it was. It was legitimate. And, you know, even if it was a couple months, I wouldn't have wanted to have, I didn't want any type of punishment because I didn't feel like I had done anything wrong. But a couple months, I could have, you know, served my time and got back to playing. But, um, when I saw the two years, I was like, this, this, this is terrible. This looks bad. I wasn't, it didn't even care about me not being able to play for two years. It was how it looked for me and mm-hmm. my reputation. I could see myself, I consider myself a role model to guys who came up from in England like me in the same type of situation or background as I have. And having that hanging over my head is not something I want. So... You know, a lot of people would have, you know, taken the job that I had got offered at the NBA PA and left it. I'm still appealing it. I'm still paying lawyer fees. I'm still going through everything because I don't, because I know I, I know my innocence and I know that uh, letting letting the masses. This is another. This comes back to what I said about the Coach K term about the masses and the perception. I can't go into. It's tough for me to come back to London and to, to go into a room or uh, to a kid or to a player or to an NBA player and say, hey, I'm here to help you out this, that, and the third. And my reputation is I ended my career off of some sort of doping scandal. People that know me know the truth and know what happened and know why it happened and know it was unfortunate. I felt like the team could have done more to help me. They didn't, neither here nor there. Um... But that's that's all. I just don't want that to precede me every time I walk into a room. Yeah, I get you. All right, we've got about four or five minutes, so I want to give you some quick-fire questions to finish up um, with. Uh, so starting with, what's your best basketball memory? Ooh, 
Best basketball memory. I have two. I have a few more, but playing in the uh, stepping on the court at the Olympics, first game in the Olympics, and that game we had against Bosnia. I don't. That's arguably the best game I've ever while myself together collectively. You know, having seventy points and forty rebounds between two players is uh, uh, was just a big deal, and being a part of that was huge, and especially in, in GGB history. What we were able to do to you know win that Eurobasket qualifying group was was huge. So those are two of my my bigger uh, basketball memories. Best British player you've ever played against? That's what I do. Um, best junior British basketball player of all time. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> wow! Best British. Junior, I'm giving it to Andrew Sullivan. Giving it to Andrew Sullivan. Best dunk of your career, just one. <laughs> That's not fair, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow, just one. When I went on that guy at, at pre-draft camp, I could think of a few couple more, but I think that one is it's tough because nobody saw it. Not too many people saw it, I'm sorry, but... There must, that, be, there must be video footage of that somewhere. I'm sure there is. I'm sure I could, you know, go find, go through the ranks and figure out, you know, where that footage is and find and see it because, you know, I know people speak to bring it up to me all the time, but uh, that is probably the best, the best thing I've had in my career. And then finally, um, a message for the British fans that followed you for, throughout your career. Thank you. Thank you for supporting me. Thank you for following me. Thank you for give me the inspiration to want to do better. Thank you for, for being there. Thank you for uh, just, um, just, just, just being who they are. You know, the basketball world in, in Great Britain is small, but it's loyal. And I'm glad to have been a part of it. I'm glad to be from London, England. I'm glad to be British. You know, people, even though I may not sound like it, I know anybody that's going to listen to this is going to be like, this kid's not from Tottenham. <laughs> but that's the first thing I tell people when they see me. I've been here for 16 years, and unfortunately, my accent kind of, you know, fell by the wayside. But first thing I do when people ask me is where I'm from, I say I'm from North London, born and raised, the biggest Tottenham fan you're going to find. So I'm loyal to my country. I'm, you know... Patriot. I'd say patriotic when it comes to Britain. Yeah, patriotic. Um, I love it and I love the fans. I love the people about it. It's home. It's who I am. It made me who I am and helped me get this far and love everything about it. Perfect place to finish. Um, thank you so much. It's been a, an incredible hour and 10, hour and 15 minutes. Um, really appreciate you taking the time and hopefully at some point in the future we can rejoin for a part two because I think there's so much stuff that we haven't even touched upon that we could go into. Yeah, sometimes I can get long-winded, Sam. You know, <laughs> you cut me off sometimes. But yeah, but it, you know, I said, like I said, you're, you're one of my favorites. So if not my favorites when it comes to a media outlet or somebody who covers British basketball, it's so difficult over the years and working with some of the resources or the lack of resources that you, you know, you had. And I know you understand that. Yeah, for sure. Just being so positive in everything you do is, is a great, great thing. And which is why I always jump at the opportunity if you need anything or need help.
you know, I need uh, an interview. I'm always willing to do so because uh, you've been good to us as a whole and, you know, we appreciate you. Awesome. Thank you so much, Pops. I will let you get running because I know uh, you're against it time-wise. But, uh, yeah, really, really appreciate the time. Thank you so much and I'm sure we'll no, speak soon. Yes, we will. Thanks right, a lot. Take care. No mercy. <laughs> you are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more.